You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we confess with our lips our great need of you. We recognize that as our hearts beat, as our lungs breathe in and out, each one of these is a small confession that we cannot and do not control our own lives. We don't have ultimate rule over the universe, and so we need you. And I pray that you would line up the words that we sing with our hearts. Because while we want to believe that confession, sometimes we, our hearts don't go the direction that our mouths do. And so I pray you'd line those up. And as we spend time in your word today, that you would renew your people by your Holy Spirit. That you'd help me to be faithful in communicating your word And that your people will be encouraged and challenged and built up and equipped with all that they need. That we would gaze afresh with clear eyes at the glory of Jesus. And that worship would would flow from us all the more freely. Teach us now as we come to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Uh, Good morning. Grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 11. And if you need a Bible, some folks from our strike team will be coming around and can get one for you if you'd like to read along. Luke chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 27. And uh, last week we, we read that and heard Jesus say something pretty challenging. And I, and I admit that uh, in these winter months I've actually quite enjoyed wearing a sweater um, more regularly. Um, but as I've read through Mark, or excuse me, of Luke 11... I've wondered if, if maybe not Mr. Rogers is as appropriate as maybe wearing a flak jacket or a body armor because Jesus just keeps nailing things here and, and saying some really challenging things. Last week he started with, if you're not for me, you're against me, period, which is kind of a hard, direct saying, right? This week we'll get into some more where, where he keeps kind of re- uh, stating, if you will, this line he's drawn in the sand. There's a kingdom of light, Jesus says, my kingdom, and there's a kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan. These two kingdoms are opposed to each other. They're at war with each other, and you're either on my team or you're on his team. Jesus is saying that when, when it comes to the spiritual reality of all humanity, there's no middle ground. Whoever's not with me is against me. And as we read, we see Jesus go on to show the contrast of the works of the kingdom of darkness, which is bondage and oppression and destruction, and the works of the kingdom of light, which are to set free those in bondage and to give uh, to the spiritually dead new life everlasting. And so um, as we read in verse 14 last week that Jesus was casting this demon out of a man, we see some different people and their response. Some marveled because, well, that's pretty amazing. So some marveled. Some didn't believe him and actually accused him of being an agent of Satan, which we talked about last week. They were um, outwardly opposed to Jesus and his work. And Jesus so masterfully dismantled that dumb argument. But there were also others. Verse 16 from last week tells us, while others, to test him, to test Jesus, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So today, as we get into the text we're reading today, 
specifically starting in verse 29, we get to hear Jesus address those people who are attempting to test him. That they kept asking him for signs from heaven. They wanted more proof than he was giving them about who he said he was. So this passage we'll read today is kind of a part two of sorts. Jesus is lying in the sand that there's no middle ground. And it's easy for us to say like, well, yes, those people who are actively opposed to Jesus are clearly not on his team. And the challenging part is Jesus is saying, those who are seeking to test me, who don't believe me, are also on the other side of the line. So when we come to this passage today, I want us to approach it kind of this way. That if Jesus is drawing a little bit of a line in the sand, that someone is either with him or against him, then let's be honest and ask the question, how do I know I'm with him? (laughs) Right? As we're reading a text like this and we find ourselves in the crowd, we kind of are asking the question, well, then where do I fall on this list, Jesus? Am I satisfied with what you're telling me and this gift of grace that you've offered in yourself or am I looking for something else? It's the question I've been asking as we read this text and I invite you to ask with me. See, when we're against Jesus... We're unsatisfied with the simple and supernatural truth of the gospel. There's a demand that Jesus prove himself in other ways. But Jesus has come to us as the light of the world to bring light to us that we might no longer live in darkness, and that is enough. That's the thrust I want to get out of this text today. So let's read our text, uh, and then we'll dive into it. We're going to start back in verse 27, um, which we read last week, 27 and 28. But it kind of serves as a bridge between these two sections. So we'll start there and we'll read through verse 36. This is the word of the Lord today. Luke 11. And as Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment of the, uh, excuse me, with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Amen. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, to dive in. Jesus is pressing not just on those who are actively against him, but also on those who keep asking him for a sign. One more proof to convince them. And these are counted as those who are not with him, but are against him. So so there's kind of two main points in this text, two ideas that show up. One, those looking for proof. The first 
people Jesus addresses, verses 29 through 32 or so. And the second one is Jesus' contrast between light and darkness, which are related, which we see in verses 33 through 36. Looking for proof, and then the contrast between light and dark. First, there are those who, in order to test Jesus, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. These are essentially people who are watching him do what he's doing and listening to him say what he's saying, and they're going, prove it. Prove it to me. And I think that's interesting because at this point, many people had seen Jesus do miraculous things. Verse 30, or 29 tells us the crowds were increasing. Why? Because he was doing miraculous things. He, he was healing people. Uh, the blind could see. The lame could walk. The, 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 those who were in bondage to, to demonic oppression, like we read last week, are being freed. He calmed a storm. He fed thousands with a small kid's lunch. They've seen him do miraculous things, and yet they're unsure. He's doing the things you would expect a Savior to do. Like we said last week, he's fulfilling the calling from the prophet Isaiah. This is what the Messiah will do. This is what God's Savior will do when he comes. He will bind up the brokenhearted. He will bring freedom to those who are in bondage. He will heal the sick. And this is good news for you. And upon hearing the news, there were many people who essentially said to Jesus, what else do you got? That's the the tenor of what's happening here. Verse 29, the crowds are increasing and Jesus responds to those who are trying to test him, not just those who are provoking him, but they're looking at what's right in front of their eyes, healing, power over storms, but are asking for something else. They want signs from the heavens, meaning we don't know what. They need the earth to shake. They need the sky to grow dark. They want to see the, you know, fire rain from the sky. We, we don't know. And Jesus says this, this generation is an evil generation, which is interesting because I think pretty much every generation since Adam is an evil generation. And yet Jesus specifically calls out this one. And he says, it seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And now you're probably asking, what is the sign of Jonah? Which is an excellent question. So, briefly, short little recap about the story of Jonah, I think, helps us out. Jonah, prophet in Israel, hears from the Lord to, to bring a message, not to God's people, but to a foreign people in Nineveh. Nineveh had a reputation for being particularly wicked. They were ruthless and uncivilized, at least from Jonah's perspective. And his response to God's command to go, to bring them a message from God, was to say, no, God, I'm not going to go, and I'm actually going to go the other direction. So Jonah runs from what God's called him to do. He doesn't think they deserve it. He doesn't think he should have to be the one to bring it. So he gets on a boat, and he heads away from Nineveh in the direction of a place called Tarshish, likely what is now modern-day Spain, or in that general direction. So Jonah pays for passage on a ship, and while out at sea, a great storm threatens to capsize the ship. And the sailors and the, the men on the boat are afraid, and they're basically asking, okay, which one of us upset which deity? Like, what's happening here? Who upset God? And Jonah essentially volunteers. And he recognizes, well, maybe I'm the problem, and says, it was me. 
I disobeyed the direct command of the Lord God of heaven, um, so throw me into the sea. Don't, you guys don't have to die for my disobedience. Now, his motivation for that, I don't really know. Was he just cashing it in? He's like, that's it, I give up. Did he expect God to save him? All we know is that Jonah goes into the water. The storm calms. The men on the boat marvel. And then a giant sea creature swallows Jonah whole. Now, there are some interesting articles on exactly what type of water-dwelling creatures could have swallowed a man whole. Uh, one, I've read some articles this week. One of the more likely ones is a sperm whale, uh, a la Moby Dick style. Uh, that's a book, by the way, Moby Dick. Uh, whale Hunter. You should read it. It's a classic. Uh, and in the book of Jonah chapter 2, we read that like, this thing, this, this fish or whale or whatever, that, that swallows him whole should have killed him. He acknowledges that. He was essentially a dead man. But the miracle was that God preserved Jonah inside this great animal and then spat him up, literally vomited him back out on the land he originally came from. Which, as a side note, sperm whales actually do like vomit up this material. Anyway, I'll put the article in the weekly update. It's fascinating. That's not the point. It doesn't need to be a whale. The, the, the point is that God did a miracle in preserving him in the belly of this animal, and then spat him back out on land. And it's at that point Jonah goes, maybe I should listen to God, and I'll go to Nineveh now. It only took, you know, a ship, uh, a storm, and a whale, and vomit. And here I am, right? So he decides, I'm going to go back and listen to what God tells me. So he does. He preaches the message that God gave him to the Ninevites to turn from their wickedness, to turn from their idolatry, and if they do not repent, the Lord God of heaven will rain down judgment and destruction upon them. That was Jonah's message, essentially. And after preaching that message, Jonah goes out of the city, finds a nice spot on the, on the hillside, essentially with his bucket of popcorn, is just waiting for the fireworks. He's expecting this evil and wicked people are for sure going to get the judgment of God, and he's waiting for it to happen. You know, just waiting. It was popcorn, by the way. And here's the thing. The Lord God, true to his word, always, does not destroy Nineveh. Why? Because the message of Jonah got all the way to the king of Nineveh, who upon hearing it is broken in heart. And he tears his clothes and commands the whole nation, the whole city, to rend their garments, tear them as a sign of, of contrition and, and uh, humility and to put ashes on their heads and to repent that the Lord God of heaven would, 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 would show them mercy and would not destroy them. And he calls their, his people to repent, and they do. Now there's more to this story about Jonah for another time, like the fact that he was angry about that as he's sitting there watching and they're not destroyed. But here's why Jesus is referencing Jonah here. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Why would the men of Nineveh rise up and condemn this generation? He tells us, For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying, They heard the message of repentance that came through Jonah, and they believed it, and they responded. But you, you have me. Someone greater than Jonah, the better Jonah, with a fuller and better message. And your response to me is, maybe. 
That's why Jesus is pressing so hard on them. And then he doubles down and, and on this kind of uh, analogy, this illustration. He says, the queen of the south, uh, reference to the queen of Sheba. You can read about it in 1 Kings 10 if you want to just make that a side note. The queen of Sheba had heard the reports of the wisdom of King Solomon, David's son, Solomon. And because she heard he was wise, she risked not only a long journey, she sought it out, but also humbled herself to hear from someone who might be wiser than she is. And Jesus says, she too will rise up in judgment of this generation because not only am I a greater prophet than Jonah, I am the wisdom and mercy of God in the flesh. And you are uninterested. You want something else. Last week I mentioned uh, the question as part of the, the illustration to, for the sermon last week. I was asked a question a week ago about if I had, could have one song in a deserted island for the rest of my life, what would it be? That I've continued to think about that all week. I actually have people texting me like, hey, what songs are you picking? And I'm like, stop it. But I've continued, I've, I've, I've tried to like search the recesses of my musical experience and go like, well, what songs would I pick? And I've listened to stuff I listened to in high school and I've had the little echo device just play music I don't normally listen to, like play something and see what it comes up with. And actually one thing that, that came up in the listening to of music this last week is uh, U2 from the Joshua Tree album, 1987, classic. I don't know if anyone thinks U2 is cool anymore. At the time, I mean, I thought U2 was cool in high school because everyone who I thought was cool thought U2 was cool. So clearly, they must be cool. But their iconic song, it's actually from the late 80s, became kind of an anthem to Generation X. And I'm kind of on the tail end of that, depending on uh, when you start counting. But... Um, the, the, the title of this song, it's the second song, I think, second track on the Joshua Tree album from 1987. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And now many of you are like, thanks, now it's going to be stuck in my head for the rest of the afternoon, and I'm really sorry for that. But, but here's the reality. It's an anthem of doubt for an entire generation. It just is. And it's got a little catchiness to it, right? I, I think, if I could be so bold, that this is the theme song for these people if they were here amongst us in, in our day and age from verses 29 through 32, right? The blind see, that's cool. The lame walk, okay. The demonized are freed and healed. That's neat, I guess. What else do you got, right? And Jesus just flat out tells them, I'm not giving you any other signs except the sign of Jonah, and here's what that is. Verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Note the tense there. Jonah had become a sign to them. And in the way he had become a sign, so will I become a sign to you. Jonah was in the belly of a great fish, counted as a dead man for three days. And soon enough, Jesus would literally lie dead in the ground for three days. The people of Nineveh repented when Jonah came to them. But you, Jesus says, even that won't be enough for you. You don't believe me now, and you're not going to believe me then. It's almost as if Jesus is more harsh with those who are seeking a sign than those who are directly opposed to him that we read about last week. And so he's drawing this line again, essentially saying, you can't just be proximity to me. 
You can't live Jesus adjacent, is what he's saying. Either you're with him or you're against him. And the unsatisfied sign seekers, Jesus sternly warns them, you're also not with me. Which should give us pause. (laughs) And let's consider the question I asked at the beginning. How do we know we're with him? Am, Am I satisfied with his gift of grace or am I looking for something else. Now now hear me, I'm not saying we won't have doubt. I'm not saying there won't be times when when we don't question God or His goodness and we'll ask why in certain situations. That's going to happen. But at the bottom of all of that, when we peel back the layers, are we able to say, and in all of that, Jesus is enough. He may heal our cancer or He may not. He may redeem that broken relationship, or despite our best humble efforts, it may stay broken. That he may be kind and generous to provide our need, or we might feel like we remain in need and just are relying on his sustenance day to day. He might calm our fears, and maybe in helping us navigate through our doubts, maybe at the bottom of that we can find a sure and sound foundation. So here, But what Jesus is pushing on is this, is Jesus, enough. Am I enough for you? He's saying. Not just what I can give you, but the fact that you get me. It is the fact that I get Jesus, that I'm loved by him, that in him I have full forgiveness in him, that, the, that he's given us his Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within me, who's shaping me ever so slowly, it seems at times, to look more like Jesus? Is it enough that he's promised that he won't leave me, that he's going to keep working on me? Is that enough? Does the song of my heart and of your heart sound more like you too? Forgive the analogy. That despite all I've tasted and seen of Jesus, I still have not found exactly what I'm looking for. Or... Does the song of my heart sound more like Psalm 42? That although I am parched and weary and needy and weak, that still at the bottom of that, I can say, why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He is my salvation and my God. I am satisfied in you, O God. Yes, we cry out to God in our distress. We ask for healing. We plead for hope in hard seasons. And we confess that whether it's Healing from cancer or a coffin, oh Lord, you are good to me. And I know that you're good to me because you gave Jesus for me, and that's enough. So that's the first part of this text, where Jesus is really pressing in on those who are looking for proof beyond what he's already shown himself to be. And the second is the contrast Jesus gives between light and darkness, and they are related. Look at verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket. He's getting to what's the purpose of light? (laughs) To put it in modern terms, nobody turns on a light and then leaves the room. Unless they're one of my kids. (laughs) Parents in the room, can I get an amen? Right? Right? Even even non-parents are like, yeah, I do that too. I'm just kidding. I love my kids. They're getting good at it. But still, like, I'll go upstairs. No one's been up there for four hours. I'm like, why is the bathroom light on? I don't know. Right? But you don't, the, the idea is you don't light a lamp and then hide it somewhere, right? I light the candle and then put it in the cupboard. 
or in the basement and then close the door. Like that, you don't do that. It doesn't make sense. The purpose of the light is to illuminate a dark room so that those who enter the room might see, right? You turn on a light in order to see. Jesus continues, your eye, he says, is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it is bad, your body is full of darkness. And just talk to anyone who's had issues with their vision can tell you how this feels, right? Cataracts or glaucoma or macular degeneration. These are just a couple of eye things that happen. The cloudiness that sets in, the, the, the narrowing of vision, and the, the kind of emotional turmoil or pain or loss that that can feel like just from having your vision skewed. Jesus says in verse 35, Therefore, because the eye is the lamp of the body, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Basically, making sure that you're dealing with real legitimate light and not counterfeits. You think you are full of light, but beware lest the light in you be darkness. What you think is light might actually not be light. Because like death and life, with him or against him, Jesus is saying you're either in the light or you're in the dark. There aren't multiple sources of true light. There's only one. Everything else is at best a reflection of true light, but it's still all in the category of not light, which is darkness. I think it was, it was Martin Luther King Jr. who, while we might differ on a great many theological points, was right when he said this, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. He's absolutely right. If, if Luke 11 wasn't a cross-reference or a source for that truth statement, it could be or should be. The danger is, it's not only the scoffer who argues that there's no way that Jesus is who he says he is. It's the one who is testing him, who doesn't trust him, the one who's not satisfied with all that Jesus has already shown himself to be. Jesus is saying that these two will find themselves not with Jesus, but against him. And lest you think this is all doom and gloom, there's a promise baked into this interaction that Jesus has in verses 35 and 36. He says, Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Verse 36, If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. If indeed the light of truth, that is the light of the gospel for us living in this New Testament reality post-resurrection of Jesus, if Jesus, the light of the world, if his life is filling up my life, then it will be wholly bright, is how our English translation says it. Wholly bright, meaning completely illuminated. If I can say it another way, totally enlightened. See, we live in a day and age where we can find an answer to just about any question in a matter of mere seconds. We have a supercomputer in our pocket that also doubles as a phone. Did you know that? Right? We can find anything we want, but here's the challenge. Sometimes in our search for the truth, we can really find any truth, lowercase t, that we'd like. In fact, we can go in search of answers that we want to find. We search and we find a plausible answer that already lines up with our preconceived positions and we consider ourselves enlightened. 
Look at what we've discovered. Now, hear me. I think we can find truth in lots of places. It was John Calvin in his commentary in the book of Titus who used this phrase, all truth is from God. The larger quote, so you can... I prove that I didn't just make it up. All truth is from God, he writes, and consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it, for it has come from God. Essentially, what he's saying is, it's not that we can't stumble onto truth, right? The the analogy, like a, a blind squirrel still finds an acorn now and again, right? A broken clock is right twice a day. Those kind of funny truisms speak to this reality, It's not that we can't stumble across a lamp or a candle. But the source of light is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. See, John's gospel opens with that kind of description of Jesus. Listen to how John speaks of Jesus entering the world. The true light, John says, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John calls Jesus the true light. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That is what's happening in Luke chapter 11. The light had come into the world, and those who he came to were like, eh, maybe. They were not satisfied with the Savior that God had sent them. And this is the challenge for us as we doubt and wrestle I believe there is legitimate doubt that can be good for our souls as we wrestle through what do we believe, what do we know to be true about God, and we, we are legitimately wrestling with it. The question and the concern is, sometimes, are we legitimately and actually wrestling, or are we actually skeptically standing in the crowd around Jesus and just waiting until He does something else before we'll officially and fully surrender. As if he still has something to prove to us. And this isn't, I'm not just speaking to those who don't have faith in Jesus here. I'm talking to those of us who have walked with Jesus for a long time. It came up last week, it comes up again here. To what extent have we relegated the saving work of Jesus, his life, death, burial, resurrection? How how much have we relegated that to something that happened there? Thank you for saving me. But what have you done for me lately? See, it's then that we we tend to move our gaze from the blinding light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We tend to shift our gaze to other things, hoping that maybe, because I'm not finding full satisfaction there, maybe something else can, can shine a little bit of light and illuminate this little dark spot in my heart that is seemingly unfulfilled. I don't know about you, but my eyes need to be regularly realigned (laughs) so as to not gaze too long at other things in hopes that maybe they'll offer a little light because at the end of the day, they don't. There is one true source of light. That's what Jesus is getting at here when he's pressing on this idea of light and darkness. And there's lots of examples for this, right? There's lots of ways in which uh, God has shown himself to be sufficient for us in his instructions of how we're to live for our flourishing, in his giving of Jesus. Let's just take our identities for, for a second. That in Christ, the scriptures tell us we are new creations. The old is God, gone, the new has come. That he is working on us and in us. As Hebrews says, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One of my favorite verses. 
It's this reality of here's who I am. It's a reshaping of my identity. And yet, when I feel my my identity is wavering or I don't know who I am, I go in search of other things to answer that question of who am I? And they're just counterfeit lights. At best, at best, they're a reflection or a refraction of the true light of Jesus. And at worst, they're a wholly manufactured and artificial thing. And Jesus cautions them, and by extension is cautioning us to ask the question, where are we living in darkness, and what does it look like to turn our eyes freshly upon Jesus so that the light of his glory and his grace might just overwhelm all the other noise and dim the lesser lights, focus our gaze that he might actually illuminate all the little dark parts that still remain in our hearts. Give us clarity of understanding and truth that we might then radiate that light of Christ into the darkness that's all around us. He doesn't go there here. But one of the things that Jesus says to his people is, you are the light of the world. You're like, well, but Jesus, but no, it's not, it's not, you're the light of the world. He's like, no, 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 I'm the light of the world. Me in you is the light of the world now, that they should see me in you as you radiate outward. Right? So these verses in Luke are are part of a series of hard things that Jesus says in this chapter. Last week, he begins by drawing this line in the sand. Now he's really, really pressing on, are, are, are we really satisfied in him or are we not? Next week, he yells a lot. Woe to you, you fools and you hypocrites. So that'll be a fun sermon, right? But there's encouragement too. Because Jesus has come to us. He's given us the sign of Jonah, if you will. He was buried. He spent three days in the grave. And he rose again so that we can have life. Remember what we read earlier from John's gospel. Jesus came into the world as the light of the world and his own did not recognize him. They did not receive him. But John doesn't stop there. In verse 12, the gospel of John chapter 1 says this, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So it's not all like heavy and discouraging. It should be hopefully encouraging, as he shines his light afresh on us, as we gaze upon Jesus, his sacrifice for us, his power and victory over sin and death, that our weary hearts and our darkened hearts are illuminated. They're renewed. Jesus, the light of the world, has come to bring light to us so that we have to no longer live in darkness. And he's enough. May we continue to make this confession. Jesus, you are enough. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe, help our unbelief. That we too were a people who walked in great darkness and we have seen a great light. Father, work in us so that we might not be like those who either outwardly reject or cynically stand off to the side. But we would recognize the power of God in Jesus to save us, to redeem us, to heal us. 
And instead of standing at a distance, we would lay down before you and say, Lord, we'll follow you wherever you go. Would you fix our vision and renew our our vision of you as we come to the communion table, that we'd gaze afresh at, at the meaning and the depth of your sacrifice for us, the shedding of your own blood to forgive us, to renew us, to make us new, and that out of our lips would spill worship and gratitude and a confession that you are enough for us, Lord Jesus. Help us now as we come to the communion table. Stir and release worship from your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.